Welcome back to Salty Talks. I'm Corinne Newfie, the Communications Specialist at the Aquaculture Research Institute. And today we are talking about sea urchins. So I went up to CCAR, the Center for Cooperative Aquaculture Research, last month to talk with Steve Eddy and Luz Coxon about some of the research that they've both been working on up there. Well, my name is Steve Eddy, and I'm the director of CCAR and have been since 2016. But I started out here as the center biologist in 2000, and we're an aquaculture research and development facility that helps new companies develop new species and new methods and get their companies off of the ground. And so over the years, we've worked with lots of different species, everything from halibut to sea urchins. Uh, We started working with sea urchins in 2000 five and have worked with them pretty much non-stop since then. I'm Luz Coxon and I'm a research associate here at CCAR. I have been working with sea urchins for the last five years or so and before that I was working with fish and started with tilapia. I'm a veterinarian in animal science and also have a master's degree in aquaculture. Uh, since I joined the sea carp now almost 13 years ago, I've been doing pretty much a little bit of fish here and then, but as I said, the last five years or so, I've been working with sea urchins and trying to produce them and enjoying the work, the little creatures. When I think of seafood in Maine, I think of oysters, lobsters, sometimes clams, Uh, But rarely do sea urchins enter my mind. In fact, before doing some background research for this podcast, I wasn't actually aware that there was much of a market here for these animals. So I asked Stephen Luz how these creatures fit into the larger seafood culture in Maine and New England. So they were actually a nuisance species when people first really became aware of them. They would... Their population exploded in the Gulf of Maine. No one is quite sure why, but we think it's because some of the uh, predator species that kept their population in check were overfished. And so sea urchin populations took off. And one of the issues in the early years was that they would go into lobster traps. And so lobster fishermen would pull up their traps instead of having lobster in there that'd be full of sea urchins. And they just regarded that as a nuisance. So they'd dump them out on the deck and they'd stomp on them and try to kill them off. Um, This was in the 90s or so. And then someone said, you know, they actually pay a lot of money for sea urchin row in Japan. There's a market for these things. And so that's when the fishery started developing. And uh, it really took off. It was unregulated. Everyone could get into it. I'm not even sure you needed a license, maybe just a commercial fishing license. And so it peaked in like 1996 or so at around $40 million in value, second only to lobsters. And pretty much all of that was being shipped to Japan. And so at first they were shipping live sea urchins to Japan and they processed them into uni over there. Um, But then some people of uh, Japanese descent who lived in Portland saw the opportunity to establish processing facilities down there. And so those were established at one time, there were like a dozen processors down in the Portland area, buying sea urchins from the fishery and processing them. And so there were a few boom years, there were like 1200, 1400 fishermen fishing for these and they were both diving for them and dragging for them from drag boats. And 
what happens when you have a lot of fishermen going after a species that's super easy to catch because they don't move very fast. You just go down and pluck them off the bottom. They the get overfished. They yeah. get overfished. And so the fishery collapsed in around 2000, really dramatically took a nosedive. And that's when people started talking about aquaculture. I've never seen sea urchin in any seafood markets that I shop at. So I was curious about what the market's actually like here. I love to order it when I'm out for sushi, but that's about the only place that I've ever seen it, which it sounds like is most people's experiences. Sushi restaurants is where most people encounter sea urchin roe. And so they're, they're eating the uni, which is the processed um, roe from the sea urchin. Chances are pretty good that came from Japan. And so what's happening is the processors here, there's only two left now, are shipping their trays of uni over to Japan. They get auctioned off. I've actually visited that auction. It's at the Skiji um, fish market in Tokyo. Hmm. It's just a room full of boxes of sea urchin roe from all over the place, including the U.S. Um, so most of that ends up for Japanese restaurants, but some of that uni gets shipped back over to the United States for all the sushi restaurants that we have here. Some of that might be from Maine, or some of it might be from Japan or other places. Maybe it's because I love to eat uni, but the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of sea urchins is definitely food. But that wasn't the original goal when sea urchin aquaculture started in Maine. It was more for restoration purposes in areas where sea urchins used to be abundant. The fishermen uh, were very interested in reseeding areas that had been wiped out where there were no longer sea urchins. And so that's what the Japanese approach was for a long time. They established the first hatcheries in Japan for sea urchins. Um, they had like six species that they fished for over there. Uh, they established hatcheries for those in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And all of those sea urchins were planted back out for restoration. And that was what people were most interested in here. It wasn't really thought to be feasible to farm them like you might farm salmon or something. Mm -hmm. um, in more recent years, people have looked at that aspect, farming them right from the hatchery all the way through in captivity to market. And that's what a lot of our research here has been focused on. So in Maine, is anyone currently farming sea urchins to market right now, or is it purely research-based? There's a there's a couple of companies doing it at, I'd say, a beginning stage. One of our oldest industry partners has a lease site in Lemoyne. It's like a three-acre bottom lease, and he grows oysters there, and he also grows sea urchins there. His market is a little different. It's not the traditional um, food market. It's more for the research market. That's what his company specializes in. So I think he has harvested some urchins from that site and sold them into that market. But we are also working with a couple of other companies that are really at the very beginning stages of growing these animals, either with seaweed or with shellfish. And I don't believe they're at the point now where they've been able to market any of their urchins. The method of actually growing these animals is something new to me. And so I asked Luz Cogson, our sea urchin culture expert, to describe how this is done for you all. Normally, the thing we do it is just to grab the, or just ask one of the divers helping us to get the brew stock into, uh, from the ocean and then to the legal size uh, sea urchins and bring it over here to sea card and acclimate them to spawning time and to mature. And then we will uh, put it in our systems with normal uh, water from the bay and we're going to feed them uh, pretty much heavily until they 
uh, develop all the gonads and going to be ready to spawn. Normally we'll be timing, the timing was going to be uh, early spring, late March uh, into April. And then after that, we collect the sea urchins from our tanks, put it on a table and do the spawning. Uh, because the sea urchins, we cannot identify them, males, females, from seeing them, we have to inject them, induce the spawning, and we use some potassium chloride for that. And then we just put them upside down, inject them, and then let to see to release. And then normally, five minutes after the uh, uh, injection, they will start releasing and it's going to be a beautiful orange color and those are the eggs and the other ones is going to be the males, it's going to be a, a creamy white, uh, thick uh, milk. And then after that, we're going to just be doing the fertilization, it's going to be also everything, all the things going to be manual and then we're going to be kind of providing the miracle of life to them because we're going to put everything together, uh, eggs and milk. We'll put those in the incubators. Incubator is going to be for about 48 hours, 24 hours. We're going to be hatching, but we leave them another 24 hours until they get to a, a And then after that, we rinse them off, put it in conicals, tanks that are going to be about 230 liters. And then we're going to start another step that is called the early development stage. Okay, so it turns out there's a lot more steps to urchin culture than I thought. So to sum that up for you, divers are going out, they are collecting brood stock from the ocean, bringing it back to Seacar to acclimate. Once they've been fed and the gonads have developed, it's now time for spawning. So the urchins will either produce eggs or milt, depending on their sex, and the eggs and milt will then be mixed and placed into incubators. That's the beginning. Then we started with an egg with a sperm, and then there's going to be the, the started fertilization, and after that, there's going to be life. And okay. then after that, they're going to become uh, larvae, and then the larvae is going to be going through so many stages about until they get competent larvae that you don't see at that point, you don't identify a sea urchin. It's going to be plurus, and then it's going to be different stages until they got. Uh, Another organelle is going to be the rudiment that also are going to be uh, progressing in time when they're going to get ready to another stage for the uh, alone that is going to be the uh, settlement and the metamorphosis. And when you call that time, now a juvenile in a sea urchin is going to become. And it's going to take about 25 days to get to that stage. But in between, you don't see a sea urchin as per se, as you always, as, as we know them. So are these like little things just swimming around in the water at this point? Yes, they are microscopic. Okay. And then normally we have to check them to see the development every day. And we feed them, actually, that's the reason to provide the development, they have to be fed. And we use microalgae for that. And then we fed them every day. And also we have to maintain the quality of the water. That means to do water changes until they get to the point that's going to be harvest, do the sediment that is going to be attaching to the surface, do the metamorphosis. That means it's coming up inside out, shading all the arms and then attaching to the surface and become a little sea urchin with the spine. It's a little tiny one, but it still is in a microscopic state. So after fertilization, um, the larval stage, and finally this juvenile stage, we can finally start to see these little things. 
Once these urchins attach to a surface, they then look like these little pincushions or hedgehog type creatures, whatever most of us picture when thinking of sea urchins, though Steve definitely had a better way to describe these animals. So when they're larvae, they look like, under the microscope, they look like a bell jar with these legs dangling down, appendages. So kind, kind of like, like a, a jellyfish or something? Kind of like a jellyfish, yeah, only the um, trunk of the body is kind of elongated, not flattened, like a jellyfish is. is. Or maybe like a tiny little octopus, something like that. And then what Lewis is referring to when they go through metamorphosis and they're competent, the body is sort of transparent. Hmm. And you can see this little shell, this little oval thing developing alongside the stomach inside of the uh, sea urchin larvae, which by the way is called an echinopluteus you want some technical jargon. And so Luz monitors that really carefully and she waits until just the right time to move them out of the larvae tanks into another set of tanks where they go through this metamorphosis and they sort of shed that outer body and all that's left is that inner portion which is called the rudiment. At that point it's literally what they call a pinhead sea urchin because they're like the size of a pinhead. And it's got the tiny little spines and the little tube feet. You can see all of this under the microscope. Luz had mentioned to me that the broodstock, the sea urchins that were collected and brought back to sea car, were eating kelp. But I wanted to know what these little tiny baby sea urchins were eating. For the little ones, for the larvae, after that, it's going to be microalgae. Okay. Different kinds of microalgae. Normally, we use here tortilleta, the rodimonas, or catasseros in different sizes, but we combine these to try to provide a full range of nutrients for them. But they have, it's also microscopic, which is just even smaller than the sea urchin. And then we fed them with that at that stage. When they are ready to sediment into the metamorphosis, we have been before that acclimated some plates or a structure or just to be able to produce my, just they're going to have uh, biofilm and then the little new is metamorphosis, just metamorphosis uh, sea urchins will be able to eat on that biofilm. And then when the mouth is going to develop, now they're going to be a start grazing around and then we use uh, the same place and then also we use alva and when they're a little bigger than that, like a two or three months after, we start putting some kelp in the small tanks as well, just to motivate them just to eat. But normally, the basic the diet is going to be kelp and uh, microalgae, all the dolls, they really enjoy those kinds. Since kelp seemed to be something that urchins like, it made me think of a practice that I have heard about before, which is farming sea urchins in tandem with kelp. Definitely, that is one of the ideas right now. After the, after the booming of the farm, uh, kale, kale farming, uh, they saw an opportunity just to have that integrated. And then uh, now we have one of, the far- one of the farmers, she is doing just really, really well because she has a farm, a kale farm, and also she's having sea urchins and producing sea urchins as well in the hatchery. Is this up in Frenchman Bay, is that? It is in Goodsboro. Okay. Yeah, just like any farmer, the seaweed farmers have to sometimes thin their crop. Mm-hmm. And so if you're growing sea urchins at the same place, you can just feed the thinnings 
to the urchins. And then sometimes too, they'll get seaweed that has barnacles on it or holes in it, or it just isn't the best grade for what they're trying to market. And the sea urchins will eat that too. The sea urchins will eat just about anything. So in Japan, they've raised them on cabbages. <laughs> they'll eat carrots. The, um, the biofilm that Luz refers to, another word for that is scuzz. So just that fuzzy awesome. stuff that grows on piers and yeah. anything you leave in the water for too long, they'll feed on that. They'll feed on detritus. Are they herbivores or? They eat um, barnacles and little snails and eggs and anything, pretty much. They're not very choosy, but they love kelp. That's their preferred diet. And that's been a problem in some places when sea urchin populations get out of hand, they can totally wipe out. Stepping away from sea urchin diet for a second, uh, the Northeast Regional Aquaculture Center, or NRAC, funds a lot of projects um, and are currently funding a project that Luz is working on with the University of Rhode Island and Colleen Suckling. So I asked Luz to tell us a little bit about that project. Oh, they are looking to enhance in their um, hatchery techniques just to be able to produce as many larvae as possible. That's just sea urchins and juveniles possible for farmers that are going to be able to integrate in different systems. And then oysters, scallops, uh, kelp. So by looking into hatchery techniques, do you mean looking into different feed formulations or like water temperature, water quality, all of the above, none of the above? All of the above, actually, yes. We're going to try just to to figure out the more efficient and more affordable way to produce massive amount of juvenile, sea urchin juveniles for farmers. And because the hatchery uh, part of it is quite intense and labor intensive, the thing we're trying to do is to use different techniques and then uh, modify systems and then to see where it's going to be the more efficient one. One of uh, the one that we're using right now is to try to implement a planting machine, the PVR, it is just a huge, like a robot, that is going to be producing uh, microalgae by itself. And the only thing just to program the, the, the system and they're going just to be adding nutrients and CO2 to the microalgae to have this quality microalgae available. Because that part of the process is quite uh, labor intensive. And that is the thing that's going to be also uh, modifying systems with filtration, air, and then water quality in water exchanges to make sure that it's going to be free of bacteria because the larvae at that stage is quite sensitive for bacterial blooms and then we'll kill them and then we to start the process has to start over again and it's quite intense the hatchery process through the nursery to when the sea urchins are large enough to put on the bottom or to put into an oyster cage or whatever is pretty lengthy it's like six months mm. and the goal is you're trying to grow these microscopic little larvae to the size of roughly a dime before they can be handled and put out. And so that takes some time. And we've had inconsistent results in our hatchery over the years. So some years we do pretty well. And then other years, you know, we produce maybe 2,000 after months and months of work. Oh gosh. So that's not good. Yeah, so that you wanna, must be frustrating. You want to end up with a hundred thousand after months and months of work and then you can attract all sorts of new growers because you've got lots of seed to offer. And so that's that was one of the main objectives of this project that was funded through NRAC was to um, figure out some of the bottlenecks. And one of those is that stage where 
they go through metamorphosis mm -hmm. and you put them into another set of tanks where you have all of this media or substrate as we call it it's like plates and plastic beads and everything all coated with the scuzz that they like to eat on you have to have the right assortment of microorganisms in that scuzz and sometimes we get really low survival through that stage and sometimes we get pretty decent survival and we don't always know why. So is an overall end goal here then to be able to have a domestic supply of seed stock for urchin culture? Definitely, that is the goal of Sikar. So earlier Steve had mentioned oyster cages as being a means of culture method and I asked him if there were any other ways that people were doing this or if that was the most common way. In Japan there's been some work growing them in tanks all the way to market size. There was a fellow in Ireland that for quite a few years was growing them in tanks for part of their life cycle and then putting them out into tide pools and then harvesting them from those. We've looked at tank aquaculture here. That was one of the projects we had a few years ago. It's expensive, but the upside is you get really good survival and faster growth. So it maybe is feasible. Um, another approach is just to find a lease site, a good lease site, and put them on bottom and let them free range. And then go back in three or four years and hope they're still there and yeah. they're grown. Does that, is predation or like, because they're also not stagnant animals, like they're definitely, they, they move around, right? Yes. So if, is predation or, I don't know, I guess I don't know how far or fast a sea urchin moves, but. They can, over a couple years or even a year, they can move quite a long ways. So yes, they can leave your lease site if they don't like it there. So that's, <laughs> that's part of the trick is you have to find a site that's got a lot of kelp and maybe if it's surrounded by an area where there is no feed, they'll stay there. Mm -hmm. The other challenge is how do you prevent poaching? You can't be out there all the time and there's no spy cameras or anything. So you could have a sea urchin fisherman go fish your area where all of your urchins are. I mean, legally they're not supposed to, but they could. And then there's the predation. And so when they're small, especially, uh, major predators are green crabs and Jonah crabs. Mm -hmm. Lobsters will eat them too. Um, when they get larger, fish like cod will eat them and probably other fish species as well. But of course there aren't as many of those as there used to be. So you have all of those things working against you. But the good thing about that approach is it's really cheap. You're just putting the seed out and you don't do a thing. You don't feed them or anything. That's kind of the opposite extreme of tank farming. And then yeah. in between, we've got this approach where shellfish growers would put some urchins in with their oysters or mussels. In the same cages? In or... the same cages or maybe eventually move them out of those cages into separate cages, depending on where they are in their life cycle. And the reason shellfish growers are interested in that is because the sea urchins, as I said before, will eat the scuzz. Mm -hmm. And so anything that grows on that shellfish cage, oh. that they can access. So they can like help with biofouling and whatnot? They can help whatnot? with biofouling, they can That's help cool. keep the shellfish themselves clean. And then at the end of it, you've got this other critter that you can market. And when I was talking about marketing earlier, and I said most of it goes to Japan for uni, mm -hmm. some of it actually is sold directly to consumers online. You can go on the internet and you can order live sea urchins. Yeah, I was looking that up the other day and was like, do I order live sea urchins? 
I think I'm tempted. For, I think for this podcast, you really <laughs> need to do that. I am tempted. I love uni, so. Yeah. I, oh, wow. My, Good. Along t- uh, with the project that we have with the INRAC, we have another a project that also we're working in then is just the uh, American States Marine Fisheries Commission. And that program is just to compare two different ways to produce eogens. One, it is in waste bath, and then they are doing uh, cages down with three different uh, kinds of feeding over mm-hmm. there, that is uh, one pr- part of the project. And the other one is also in Lamoine, in Jordan River, when we are putting different densities of sea urchins in cages to see how they're going to work. And then uh, we are also uh, just working with that and trying just to see which uh, kind of uh, uh, the type of production and feeding plus density will be the best to offer to and suggest to farmers as well. And a third project that we're just starting on is through the USDA SARE. I think that stands for Sustainable Aquaculture or Sustainable Agricultural Research or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that project, we're working with shellfish growers who want to include sea urchins at their lease site. And we're going to see, for example, how many sea urchins should you put in a shellfish cage? Is it five? Is it 20? Mm-hmm. How clean do they keep the cages? How fast do they grow? What's their survival like? So we're just going to try to answer some of those basic questions. That's interesting because I was about to ask you about stocking density for sea urchins because I was just talking with Dana Morris at Sea Grants about scallops and stocking density and it was so much lower compared to oysters of Mm -hmm. what I was expecting. But I would think that sea urchin aquaculture would also be a lot lower of stocking density they have to attach to a surface so that means you're limited by you know how much surface area is in your container Mm -hmm. and you can't pack them in there so tightly that their spines are jabbing into their neighbor so they need to have access to feed i mean they can kind of clamber over each other and sometimes you'll see these aggregations out in the wild where they're like literally heaped on top of each other but that's kind of unusual and it wouldn't really work very well in aquaculture so those are sort of some of the limiting factors. And then when you grow them with shellfish, the density will be probably pretty low because really the focus is the shellfish and you can't pack a lot of sea urchins in with a lot of oysters or scallops or whatever. Um, so the shellfish growers aren't gonna end up with a lot of animals, but if they do this direct to consumer marketing, they could potentially sell each animal for like five bucks a pop. Five bucks for each sea urchin? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, a market size urchin is around two inches in diameter. That's more than I would have thought. Because oysters are like a dollar each, or I guess yeah. I. Yeah. It's because there's, it's rare, right? So there's not a yeah. lot of them, and there is demand. And these companies that I mentioned, the processors that are selling them online, that's what they're getting. Because Steve and Luz have both been working with sea urchins for quite some time, I wanted to know what both of them were particularly excited about and what their hopes for the future of sea urchin aquaculture might be. Oh, yes, definitely we are so excited because uh, we, I mean, our goal, as we mentioned before, is just to be able to produce in the hatchery as many seeds as possible, many juveniles as possible, and then that will open the door for so many other possible options. Shellfish growers, kelp growers, and then even to find out people that are going to be going down to their own cages and trying to produce them uh, as a final crop. Because aquaculture 
online aquaculture zero ginseng in online inland is going to be a little more a lot expensive because everything has to be they, the, the cycle is going to take about three or four years just to get to this uh, market size while they are in the ocean they already have all the water all the food that are going to be expedited just to do more faster than inland and that's so exciting for us just to try to get that as many as possible and it's going to be working hard for that for something that remains as unproven as sea urchin aquaculture is, and no one in the United States is actually making any money at it that mm -hmm. I know of, there's a surprising amount of interest. I get calls all the time about sea urchins from all over the world. People are just very intrigued by these animals. And then there is, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of economic incentive. If mm -hmm. you can figure it out, you could actually make some money. The uni is worth quite a lot. And then there's this market for whole live animals. And in addition to the uni market and whole live animals, there's also the possibility of using sea urchin as an ingredient. Mediterranean chefs, for example, have used their species over there, Paracentrotus libidus, and there might be another one too. They take the uh, uni and they mix it into sauces. Yeah, like pasta sauces and yeah, whatnot. Yeah. yeah, and that's flavor. And so we've got New York City, Boston, Toronto, Chicago, all these big cities with all these innovative chefs and, you know, fine restaurants. I think they would really be eager to have a steady, reliable source of uni that they could experiment with and create new dishes with. So for those of you listening that have not tried sea urchin or are intimidated, you should. In the best way possible, it tastes like you have face planted in the ocean. Um, the uni which is the gonad of the urchin absorbs salt and sugar and amino acids and it creates this trifecta of flavors that is just so good but once again steve had a better description than i did umami it's from um the amino acid glutamate which the uni is high in and so there's this umami flavor there's sort of a little sweet aftertaste and then there's some people who think like oysters that sea urchin is an aphrodisiac so there's that. <laughs> Talking about the flavors of uni had me thinking about marowar with oysters. Where an oyster is grown and what the water is like will affect the flavor of the oyster, and I wanted to know if this was similar for sea urchins too. Somewhat, but the real trick is the final diet that they eat before you harvest them. And so it's possible to grow sea urchins pretty quickly on something like catfish feed, which is around 20% protein. They grow pretty quickly. But then if you were to eat a sea urchin that had only been grown on catfish feed, it would taste kind of fishy. Hmm. And the gonad color might be sort of brownish. There might be a little bitterness to it. So it's really important when you, when you farm these to give them like a finishing diet. And kelp works really well. Dulls, Irish moss, alaria, certain hmm. species of seaweed really prime the flavor. But there's also a company that's developed a artificial diet, formulated diet, that can do the same thing, sold under this entity called Urchinomics. And so it's only available through a special license. And the concept of Urchinomics is in certain parts of the world, like in California, for example, the sea urchins have grown to such abundance that they've wiped out the kelp beds and it's changed the ecology and people want to restore those kelp ecosystems but you have to remove these herbivores. Mm -hmm. And so 
they're trying to incentivize that by this concept of while you go out, you catch all of these urchins from these areas where the kelp has been wiped out and probably their gonad quality isn't very good because the kelp is all gone. They don't have anything to eat. And so they're not very marketable, but you can bring them into captivity and feed them the special diet. And it only takes maybe 12 weeks. And then at the end of that, you've got these urchins that have now big, plump, gorgeous gonads, nice orange gold color, got the sweet umami flavor, and then you can sell those. Hmm, And then you're you're kind of doing two things at once, right? It's like an economic opportunity and you're helping restore these kelp ecosystems. Urchinomics is a great name for that company. I love that. Um, Liz, do you eat sea urchins? Yes, actually I was introduced with them by Steve. Oh, really? Oh, back in the day, yes. We were just doing a spawning at that time they say have you ever tried this like no and you want to try it? like of course and then just crack one open enjoy it that's at, so awesome at that time it was like oh a little bit too salty for me but later on we did also a flavor a test with a group uh, student that we have in here and was done in Urano. Oh, cool. and it was a lot of the trick of that saltiness was the rinsing mm. before we eat it and it was that sweet, creamy, really enjoyable flavor. And then really, I enjoyed it. And it was, I thought it was so good. I should eat uni for dinner tonight. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. Oh, one thing that I wanted to mention is we have been uh, named our sea urchin. We are talking about our sea urchin. is our green sea urchin native to the Gulf of Maine. Yeah, I should have asked you that like <laughs> 40 minutes ago. Green sea urchins, okay. Strongylocentrotus drobachiensis is the scientific mm-hmm. name. And they're, they're natives of the Gulf of Maine, but they're found all through the Northern Atlantic, Northern Pacific. They're found in, um, off of a Russian coast in the Arctic up there. They're found in Norway. So they, they got a pretty wide range, but the ones from the Gulf of Maine are renowned in Japan for their quality. And they're very similar to one of the preferred Japanese species. Which is? Uh, Strongylocentrotus intermedius. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We're all, we're all familiar with that. I yeah. I'm still always to pronounce that name because he didn't do it right well. I will take some time and not pronounce that right. <laughs> so the guy that kind of got us started in sea urchin aquaculture was a fellow named Jim Wadsworth. And he was one of the early people in the fishery that was buying the sea urchins from the divers and shipping them over to Japan live where they would be processed. He had a company called Friendship International. When the fishery went bust, he saw the opportunity or potential opportunity of aquaculture. And he first started working with um, Mick Devon, who was with the University of Maine, and Larry Harris, who was with the University of New Hampshire. And then uh, him and uh, Larry Harris came up here to CCAR and did one of the first experiments that they did in collaboration with us. That was in 2005, and then ever since then we've been involved in it. With all the talk of how much interest there is out there for sea urchin aquaculture and the project that Luz is working on with folks down in Rhode Island, I asked if there were other places in the U.S. that were also farming sea urchin, perhaps somewhere else off the coast in New England. Well, they're cold water species. So even like if you grow them with shellfish, a lot of shellfish sites are in warmer Mm -hmm. water above, oh, maybe like 64 degrees Fahrenheit, 
they're not very comfortable. They really prefer centigrade around 12 to 15, which I think 15 is like 59 Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the upper part of their comfort range. And so you're limited to cold water sites. So once you get south of Portland or even Camden, it starts getting kind of warm, especially now with the climate change. Um, there used to be a commercial fishery in Massachusetts for green sea urchins. That's gone. There's very few sites in Massachusetts where you could probably grow them. So yeah, it's mostly limited to the Gulf of Maine, Maine North. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be starting our season and we are going to go big. Big that's on. Yep, and I just want to give a shout out to the Maine Aquaculture Innovation Center who funded our first sea urchin hatchery that we still use um, back in, I don't know, 2006 or seven or so. They uh, provided the funds that enabled us to get our hatchery program off. Oh, that's great. Table. Yeah. And while I think that was a pretty good wrapping up point from Steve there, I just wanted to leave you all with this. I had some chickens cross the road in front of me the other day. And <laughs> but you like, why did the sea urchin cross the road? To get know. to the other side. <laughs> to flatten someone's tire? I don't know. <laughs>